I do have to ask you all to forgive my voice. It is taking a thrashing this week, so I may have bouts of speech that remind you of what it was to be a 13-year-old boy. For those of you who were once a 13-year-old boy, we'll see. Um, Anyways, welcome. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful for you to be with us today as we continue in the book of Deuteronomy together. This thing is new. Gary usually does this. I feel a bit naked not having something to grip. I'm trying this out, okay? Uh, it's a little, bit, a little bit strange. Rewind the clock a little bit, get a little uh, um, personal for my childhood. I grew up, child of the 90s, during what was known as the, the baseball card craze. All right, who remembers this, right? So my middle school across the street was a card shop. Remember those? And we'd go there after school all the time. I bought probably thousands of cards. I had binders with plastic sheets, and I would fill them. And I was sold a false bill of goods because I grew up being told that baseball cards would buy my first car, They'd pay for college. You, you, you. I learned because of Don, Russ, and Fleer and everyone else printing crazy amounts of cards in the late 80s into the early 90s that the great majority, including every card I had, would become worthless. As worthless as the stack of Beanie Babies <laughs> that you see this couple fighting over in divorce court. <laughs> Remember that craze. That was some of y'all <laughs> a little ways back. Isn't that funny? Now, despite the fact that all of my baseball cards are worthless, there are still some that are valuable. There's a few months ago, an Onus Wagner card from 1909 sold for $6.6 million. And one of the things that gives this card such value on top of its age is the fact that there just aren't very many of them. I read one collector estimate that there's between 50 and 75, only a few of which are actually in really good condition, lending to its value. I want you to just imagine for me with a moment as we branch away from Beanie Babies and cards, so let's say paintings, that if you had a Rembrandt, that's, that's a good painting, and a Picasso and a Van Gogh, depending on your cultural background, that if you had these, these different paintings up here, and they were each worth perhaps millions upon millions, that if you were able to look and, and, and see and think about just the immense value of these paintings, this week as I was pondering what God says about himself in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I had this realization. Each of these paintings would nonetheless be one of many in a category. What do I mean by that? that the Rembrandt and the Picasso and the Van Gogh are expensive paintings, but they're merely an expensive painting amongst a group or a category of expensive paintings. You think about what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the focus, the focal point of what we're going to get to is the claim he makes about himself is that he isn't a part of a category. He isn't merely a God amongst gods, but that he is the category. And he expects us to treat him as such and to respond accordingly. That's where we find ourselves going today. 
Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. You can open up there if you have your own Bible. Before we read in chapter 6, just in the way of review, in Exodus, God takes his people and he redeems them. He rescues them out of Egypt and he tries to get them to the promised land and they just keep screwing up. They have a heart issue that constantly rebels against the good things that God wants to give them. And he more or less drags them in his faithfulness, despite their faithlessness. It speaks to our situation a little bit today. He drags them through and gets them to the edge of the promised land. And the faithless generation had passed away. And this new generation is being prepared with the book of Deuteronomy. They're being instructed in the ways of God and the knowledge of God, so in the covenant that God is entering with them so that they can flourish and prosper in the land he has promised them. That's where we are. And the first few chapters recount that history. In chapter 5, he gives the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 6, he continues with where we are today. Verse 1. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God. It's a reverential awe of God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands. He's talking about obedience. I am giving you your son, your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Remember Gary's description several uh, months back? That Deuteronomy is a framework of love for a flourishing people. I think that's how he did it. Verse 3, listen. Listen. I like that the word listen is used here and not hear. If you have kids or you've ever done any coaching or teaching, you know there's a difference between a kid that hears you and a kid that listens to you. Yes? Listen. Because with listening comes the idea of obedience. Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey, always an interesting way to communicate God's favor. These are two categories. He's actually not talking about literal milk and honey, but it, even though there will be a kind of honey and a kind of milk where they're going, but these, are, these two images capture large categories of the richness of resources in the land into which they're entering. Honey being what is provided naturally by nature and milk, that which is provided by the cattle, that, that would be herded by, by the people. And so two kinds of resources which will be plentiful as a manifestation of God's promises and his promise keeping. That's our intro. But now we get to verse 4. We get to what is known famously as the Shema. This is the center of the focal point of where we'll be spending most of our time. The Shema, by the way, is something that faithful Jews would recite twice a day every single day. The Shema, part of the Shema, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? He quotes this, what we're about to read. So let's do it. Deuteronomy 6. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, the word listen, not just hear. Listen, hear and obey. Listen, Israel. But then this phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What in the world is meant by that? In Hebrew, 
Those eight words are actually just four words. And in Hebrew, there is no word for is, confusingly enough. If you were to read it in the Hebrew, you would read, Lord, Adonai, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, God, Lord, one. And so there's been some disagreement over the years on how to translate that and what exactly is meant by that. And in the context of, of this passage, as I look through different Hebrew grammars and as I look through different historical commentators, one of the things that came out over and over and over again is while some people argue that there is a numeric reference for God, his oneness, overwhelmingly, people believe that in English, the literalness of the word one loses sight of the fact that God's uniqueness is what comes through in this text. God doesn't want you to worship idols. There is no other God like him. And so many argue that the word one should instead be translated alone. The Lord, our God, he is Lord alone because there are no other gods. My first point is this, God is truly one of a kind. I mentioned that he is not a part of a category. He is the category. I want you to think about something for the people of Israel. God's people in the Old Testament were not monotheists. They did not believe, this is one of their issues, one of their issues is they did not believe in the existence of only one God. Their God did, but they didn't. They were what we call henotheists. And a henotheist is someone who believed in a regional deity and they had their God and they were loyal and worshiped their God, but they believed in the existence of other gods. And you were to serve your God and you would hope that that God would take out the other gods. And God, one of the, the, the heartbeats of the entire Old Testament is him trying to tell his people over and over again, those are fake. They don't really exist. They're created by man. And you see God try to drag the henotheism out of his people and replace it with a monotheism because he is the only God. And we believe that God is truly one of a kind. This actually helps us counter the counterfeit gods in the world. And it was meant to help them counter the counterfeit gods in their world. One of the ways you know a God is counterfeit. If a God claims to be a God among gods, that God is not from God. Say that again. If a God claims to be a God amongst many gods, that God is not from God. Now, there's been a great reversal over the past few hundred years of God's efforts to drag his people from henotheism to monotheism. And that great reversal has been a giant effort of the Mormon church. Six and a half million people identified as Mormons in 2018. Joseph Smith of the Mormon church wrote gods have an ascendancy over the angels who are ministering servants in the resurrection. Some are raised to be angels. Others are raised to become gods. It goes on, I will preach on the plurality of gods in another place, commentating on Genesis. In the very beginning, the Bible shows there is a plurality of gods beyond the power of refutation. I didn't put it, but he goes on to completely butcher the Hebrew beyond recognition as he explains and makes his case. This is the reason why, despite the fact that the Mormon church has claimed to be Christian, the Christian church has said, no, you're not. 
Deuteronomy 4.35. You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Period. End of story. Isaiah 44.6. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God but me. Catch that. He didn't say there's many gods and there's no Lord but me. He said there's no God but me. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me. Our God is one of a kind. And the knowledge of that helps us counter the counterfeits, including that which exists in our world today. But it also helps us endure the trials and tribulations of this world with confidence, knowing that the God that we worship is the only actual God that's in control, that holds the future in his grip, that holds our trajectory in his hand. Because our world is full of obstacles, of challenges, and it's full of enemies. There's a real enemy in this world. Now, against everything the political pundits will try to convince you that real enemy is not a Democrat, that real enemy is not a Republican, that real enemy is not a political leader, that real enemy isn't even a political pundit. According to Paul, it is the spiritual forces of evil in this world. And yet even then, our enemy is not God. We have to let that sink in for a moment. One of the most beautiful, one of the main core themes of the book of Revelation is that our enemy is not God. And that when Jesus comes in his ultimate victory, Satan meets his ultimate demise. There's something powerful about that. And that as we go through this world and as the enemy fights back and invades our world, he does so attached to a leash for a limited period of time. He is not God. Perhaps you've never thought about this. Satan isn't omnipresent. He's not everywhere. His minions are not everywhere. They don't have the power that God has. But our enemy does try to trick us into one of two camps, and we've all probably been tempted at one moment or another to fall into one. The enemy will try to get you into the first camp, which is, that was a puberty moment, by the way. I know you heard that crack. The first camp is this. The enemy will try to convince you he doesn't exist, to forget that he exists. They'll try to get you to spend far more time advocating and arguing about for or against political powers than against spiritual powers. Second camp is he will try to convince you that the enemy is far more powerful than he actually is. Again, God gives us the book of Revelation to remind us of what is Satan's ultimate demise. Satan isn't God. And thus we endure whatever trial comes our way knowing that the one and only God of love who ultimately has my best at heart works all things together for the good of those who love him. And finally, our God is one of a kind. And being one of a kind, that helps us fight for focus in a world full of distractions. I don't have a photo of this, But the orange-bellied parrot is one of the rarest birds on earth, okay? And you better believe that if you were a bird watcher, you had a camera, and you actually knew what it looked like, and you were surrounded by a bunch of pigeons and seagulls and just birds that annoy the heck out of you, and you're everywhere, and, and you spotted one, you'd stop, and you'd focus in, and you'd devote whatever you could to capturing the moment, 
because there's nothing else like it. There's nothing like our God, one of a kind, as a source of comfort, as a source of hope, as a source of peace and boldness, fearlessness, patience, love. There are so many things in this world that will try to tell you that they can do it better, to which we have to remind ourselves constantly, fighting for focus, there's nothing like our God. He's one of a kind. And so our God calls us to respond to this in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Point number two, if our God is one of a kind, doesn't it make sense that our affections for God should be one of a kind? Now, what does it mean to love? We see manifestations of love all over scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, famous passage you see in every other wedding you attend. You can throw it up there. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude. What's interesting in this passage is it's not talking about, these aren't adjectives. This isn't like saying the car is big, the house is red. Tom Brady is however you finish it, depending on, on where you fall. These are verbs. Love does patience. Love, I just love that I heard several people say great. Just right off the bat. All right. Hey, we only worship Jesus here. Uh, love, love does patience. Love does kindness. Love does, these are verbs. These are things that, these are manifestations of love. John 15, Jesus says this. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. These are manifestations. These are the things that love does. Earlier in chapter 6, we see obedience. Obedience to God is a manifestation, an outgrowth of our love for God. But what is it? What is love in and of itself? I really appreciate the work of, of John Piper in his book, Desiring God, relying heavily on the Puritan Jonathan Edwards as he surveys the scriptures to answer this question. And as we've mentioned before, he takes the first question of the Westminster Catechism, which is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he tweaks it. That the chief end of man is actually to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That one of the greatest expressions of affection, that affection in of itself, is to actually enjoy the person who is receiving the affection, to delight in the person who is the object of your affection, to find joy. This is echoed throughout the scriptures. God chases the hearts of his people as he talks about hard hearts and hearts of stone becoming hearts of flesh, as he talks about writing the law in people's hearts. When we preach through Isaiah, Gary said this over and over again, the heart is the target, that God doesn't just want what we do, but God wants us to want him. We get glimpses of this kind of delight in the Psalms as David ponders God's law, calling it sweeter than honey. God wants his people to love him in this way, not just with part of who they are, but with all of who they are. And this brings us to the kind of love he calls us to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. 
Let's break these words down for a moment. What does it mean to love the Lord God with all your heart? Feelers in the room, I hate to break this to you, I'm sorry, but in ancient Semitic culture, when it says with your heart, the heart, it can include emotions, but the focal point is it's the main seat of rational thinking. Okay? Some of you feel totally let down right now. When it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, in the Hebrew, it's referring to your thinking, your mind, which is why Jesus, speaking in a Hellenized culture, he actually adds with your mind in the Gospels when he regurgitates this. So when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your rational thinking, with your mind, with your thoughts, what does it look like to do that? You can come up with lots of examples. I'll give you two. How powerful and yet simple is it when someone you love shoots you a text or sends you a note and all it says is, I've been thinking about you and this is why I'm grateful for you. How meaningful is that? And what a powerful expression of affection. Some of you may not have done that in a long time. When was the last time you did that with God? You can actually sit back and just say to your, just think about the goodness of God and then communicate why you're grateful to him. But in addition to thinking of God, using our thoughts to glorify God, we're also called to protect our minds from being wooed, our affections being wooed in a different direction. I've been married for, it'll be, it'll be 12 years at the end of this year. And I'll tell you, and I've shared kind of in, in, in my, my battles and struggles in our marriage over the past few years from the pulpit, one of the things I have to do to be faithful in my affections to my wife is to guard my mind from things, to insulate my mind from things that would pull my affection from my wife. That's what I have to do. It's a part of me being affectionate to her. Because I have to be careful to not let those affections be dragged away. Same goes with God. As we think about the, 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 the programming and the media and everything that we consume, that we let fill our minds, that we're actually thinking about intentionally, what is dragging my affection away from God? The love of God with all our minds. He also says love with your soul. Now, the word soul has been really, had a number done on it over the years. This idea that a soul is a immaterial thing in you that when you die, it floats away, okay, because it's completely separate from your body. That idea didn't come around till Greek philosophy, hundreds and hundreds of years later. The Hebrew word nephesh, which is translated here soul, is also translated as life. It's translated as self. It's meant to encapsulate a little bit more holistically your you-ness. It's used in scripture on multiple occasions to refer to animals. The very essence of who you are. Your passions, your drives, your motivations, your desires. We say love God with, with all that is you. And then finally, with all your strength. With your service your talents, your energy, your time. There's a quote by Eugene Merrill. He says, Israel must love God with all its essence and expression. I love how concisely he puts that. Oh, 
that we would hunger to love God with all of our affections, with all of our essence, and with all of our expression. But the truth is our world is full of so many things that just compete for these affections. When it says love the Lord your God with all that you are, that becomes so darn difficult when the world is inundating with me with things that say, no, love me more. Love me more. Love me with your thoughts. Love me with your soul. Love me with your strength. Inundated with information, overstimulation of our media, our environment's full of things competing for our attention and affection. There was actually an interesting study done, preschoolers, and I have a, a, a four-year-old who's in preschool, and I thought, thought this was fascinating. What they did is they went to a normal preschool classroom, and for a week they monitored their behavior, and they, they, they kept track of all of their interactions, and they put it all into a data format. And that sounds terribly boring to me, but they did it. They just watched the kids, and they put everything, in, and, they, and, they, and, they, and they logged it all. Then they took giant poster boards with visuals, and they added them to the room, several of them, around on the walls. They wanted to see what would happen when you add more visual stimulation to a classroom with two, three, and four-year-olds. What did they find? The kids argued more. They shared less. They retained less. They were way more fussy. They were far less patient. One researcher summarized it like this. Classrooms that created a visual overload have been known to cause the brain to soak up the atmosphere rather than the actual knowledge. And I thought about this and I thought to myself, isn't this us? Replace the word knowledge, right, with affection for God and replace the atmosphere there with all the things that we let inundate our lives that we create atmospheres for ourselves that inundate us so that we're forced to soak them up as opposed to soaking up time with God, letting our affections for God grow. The world is just full of so much noise, isn't it? And noise is just such a distraction. Now, I've been in ministry for a few years in, in a few different churches and ministry contexts, and something that I've heard many times over the years is someone will come to the church service, they'll come during worship, and, and they're here to focus, they're here to receive something from God. But during a service, perhaps during the preaching, some cell phones go off, okay? Which, by the way, if yours does, it's going to be awkward after this, okay? Cell phone goes off, you get a little bit frustrated, Maybe you hear some babies making some noise, which, by the way, sometimes that'll be my baby, just to be honest, okay? Baby making some noise. Maybe they come up and they're like, oh, the volume or the fog machine or something, right? Someone looking at me funny. It was distracting me from what I was trying to receive from God. I was there to receive. And I thought to myself this week, what would it look like if we were just as frustrated with the noise that we submit ourselves to on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Friday night, when God has just as much for you as we are when we come to focus for an hour on a Sunday morning. What if we were willing to see at times the noise that Netflix is 
when God has something for you. The noise that the news that Fox and CNN are when God has something for you. The noise that your time invested on Facebook and Pinterest and TikTok and Instagram and YouTube is when perhaps God has something for you. And what if we were just as interested in clearing out some of that noise as we are on focusing for an hour on a Sunday morning? Think about it. Our God is one of a kind and our affections for God should be one of a kind. Finally, in the closing verses, God calls us to think about what this looks like for the next generation and to live accordingly. Starting in verse 6, these words I'm giving you should be on your heart. Verse 7, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Basically all the time. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Point number three, our kids, by the way we act, by the way we treat God's truth, by where we put God's truth in our homes, should see that our God is truly one of a kind. I read this scripture and I think to myself, God wants his people to constantly remind and remember. And if you don't have kids, you have spiritual kids in this house. You have kids that we're raising up as a church that you get to pour into and invest in. And our goal as a church is to make God's truth unavoidable for these kids. And in our homes, that's what we do as well. You may not have kids, but you probably have guests. I would say, do what you can to make God's truth unavoidable in your home. Talk about it all the time. Put it up wherever you can. Last night I went around, told Zach kind of last minute. I was like, hey, I'm gonna send you some photos. Can you put these up? This may look different in your house. Okay, these are just things that happen to be up in my home. Some of them are nicer looking, by the way, because my wife is in charge of that but they're not always that way, okay? We got living room right here. Go to the next one. This is in our, uh, this is in our kitchen. Keep going. Another one that you can see in our kitchen while we do the dishes. This is in our bedroom. This is in our boys' bedroom. That's their bunk bed. We want scripture in their room. We want scripture in every room. Keep going. You can stop here. This is our scripture window. This is an old thing we got at a garage sale that we've always just hung up in a room in our house and we write scripture on it. Sometimes we write scripture on the mirror in the bathroom. Sometimes it goes on the mirror in our bedroom. Right now we have our, our Awana verses that for the last several weeks we've been working with our child. So those are on the left. And then Hebrews that we've been reading through before dinner on the right. This is our way of cycling through scripture in our home. It may look different for you. Maybe you got to get it on the lock screen on your phone. So the first thing you see is some, is, is some God's truth. But get the word in your home. Make it unavoidable. He says, put it on the doors, put it on the gateposts, put it everywhere. I want, we want our kids, we can't control who ultimately they surrender to in life, whether it be themselves or God. But I don't want them not knowing to be an excuse. Get God's word up in your home. Our God is one of a kind. Our affection should be one of a kind. We want our kids to see 
that God is truly one of a kind as well. I'll end with this. This command to love with all that we are is one that we can't actually do perfectly on our own. And he gives this to people who didn't have the Holy Spirit. And he gave it to people that failed over and over again. And this room is full of people, myself included, who have failed over and over again. But that's precisely why one person came, God in the flesh, who could do it perfectly. And when Jesus came, he actually loved God with all of who he was. So that when he hung on the cross, he didn't bear his punishment for sin. He bore our punishment for sin instead. So that if we trust in him, we get to participate in that love that God talks about. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is why Jesus came. And so as we go out from here, I challenge you to think about where are things tugging on your affections and where do you need to go to God and realign and recalibrate? Think about him. Pray to him. Create space in your homes for him. Talk about him. Our God is truly one of a kind. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, as we go out from here, that you would give us discernment on what areas of our life, Lord, need some refocusing. Lord, help us to, again, realign, to recalibrate, to see the things that have been tugging on our affections. And, Lord, that we can bring those things back into focus. Help us to confess those things as you bring them to light. And, Lord, to receive your grace and your mercy as you lavish it upon us, Lord, when we do so. We love you, Lord. You are good and faithful. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.